the, the response that I get, it does raise an eyebrow and you do wonder, but you know, what are the check boxes that they usually want you to have? You have to be an experienced founder. Okay, well, I've been building multi-million dollar corporations since I was a teenager. Well, you have to be able to prove that you can execute. Okay, I built a bank in the middle of a pandemic. Okay, well, you have to be able to prove that you can put together a team. There are 30 people currently working for me for free. I'm all into this. I hit all the points. I, I am putting all of this together. So please look past my black face and notice what I'm building here is something that is truly incredible. Why is this difficult? So it's hard to say this is exactly what it is, but I'm running out of reasons as to what else it could be. And it sucks that that's even a consideration. What's up on Found Nation? Dan Kihanya here. Thanks so much for checking out another episode of Founders Unfound. That was Jarrett Wright, founder and CEO of Higher Rewards, a company that offers nonprofits and faith-based organizations the ability to provide their members a self-branded credit card, where a percentage of every purchase goes back to the organization. Jarrett is from several generations deep in the San Francisco Bay Area. He showed drive and ability from an early age, reading by two years old, and doing the family's grocery shopping at six. But the pace and structure of school frustrated him, so instead of putting his intellectual horsepower to work in college right away, he started a property development company at 19, and within a few years he was nationally recognized and bringing in millions in revenue. And that's just the start of his story. The rest is amazing. You'll want to listen in. Our episode is sponsored by Trajectory Startup, Ideation to Product Market Fit. This new book by entrepreneur and investor Dave Parker is the playbook for those at the earliest stages of the startup journey. Even if you're just contemplating the jump to entrepreneurship, it's the guide for you. To get Dave's book today, look for a link in the show notes or simply go to dkparker.com, amazon.com, or anywhere you like to buy books. Before we continue, please make sure to like and subscribe to the podcast. We're available anywhere you get your podcasts, even YouTube. We so appreciate everyone in Unfound Nation who shows up to listen to the great founders we get on the show. So drop us a review on Apple or Podchaser.com. Every review matters. Now, on with the episode. Stay safe and hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to Founders Unfound, spotlighting the best startups you don't know yet. We bring you stories of exceptional founders from underrepresented and underestimated backgrounds. This is the latest episode in our continuing series on founders of African descent. I'm your host, Dan Kihanya. Let's get on it. Today, we have Jarrett Wright, founder and CEO of Higher Rewards, a company that offers nonprofits and faith-based organizations the ability to provide their members a self-branded credit card, where a percentage of every purchase goes back to the organization. Welcome to the show, Jarrett. We're super excited to have you on. Thanks for making the time. No problem. Happy to be here. So I tried to give it a shot explaining what Higher Rewards is, but in case I didn't really capture it, why don't you quickly just give us and the listeners a quick understanding of what exactly is Higher Rewards? Well, first and foremost, you pretty much nailed it. That's exactly what we do. And really, for me, it is a way about supporting those who are already supporting others. I mean, literally, our mission statement is to empower those who are already dedicating themselves to others. And for me, it really boils down to support. And when I take a step back and look at society, I think to myself, well, who is it out there that is having the biggest impact on the world? And it comes down to nonprofits and faith-based organizations, really. And we're, we're looking to solve the problems of them having no real easy, affordable or scalable way to raise funds. Current options require tons of overhead and prevent these vital programs from growing, you know, kind of hurting the institutions and, and crippling the communities they serve. So higher rewards is us using capitalism to solve some, some of these ills that, that we've uh, seen in society. I love it. And in full transparency, this really captures two major passions of mine. I've started my career in the award space and uh, working with credit cards and points. And I'm a proud and dedicated member of a faith-based organization. So I really love the concept and I think it's very timely. But before we dive more into the company, let's hear a little bit about Jared. So tell us kind of where you're from, where did you grow up? Where does Jared come from? So I am a Bay Area native, but a true native. My family's been here for, goodness, about 100 years now. We've been in the Bay Area. I grew up in Richmond. Most of my family's from San Francisco. I grew up in Richmond. 
Um, I spent the first 15 years of my life there, bounced around uh, throughout the Bay Area ever since then. So tell us about growing up. So Richmond, I lived in Berkeley, obviously. You and I have that in common. We were both for Haas, Haas people. So, so tell us about growing up in Richmond. Do you have brothers and sisters? Was life kind of angelic, difficult, somewhere in between? So I'm 38 now. So growing up in Richmond in the 80s, you know, it was an adventure for all the wrong reasons. I don't come from a fancy family. You know, we didn't have any money. And so we're very much like the, you know, everyone else, you know, in, in that neighborhood. But for me, my mom was just determined to be the perfect mother. You know, she taught me how to read when I was two years old. And I mean, I look at two year olds now and I'm thinking to myself, like, good Lord, like who has the patience to teach that thing how to read? My mom, <laughs> you know, she would give me. 40 bucks when I was about six or seven years old in the parking lot of Lucky's and sent me in the grocery store to get two weeks of groceries. This is back when two, 40 bucks would give you two weeks of groceries. And I'd come back out with a shopping cart full of, you know, what we would eat for the next, the next couple of weeks. You know, she wanted to make sure that I was on every form of transportation. Was that out of necessity or she was just trying to help you learn or that's really fascinating. Six years old. I mean, I have kids. I mean, I wouldn't send them in to buy a pack of gum. <laughs> My mom, she was just determined to make sure that I was prepared for anything. I mean, even now to this day, you know, I'm never lost because, you know, she taught me, you know, how to read maps and how to, you know, navigate and, you know, survey my area, my spatial awareness, like all of that comes from her, um, making sure that I am in tune to the smallest details because, you know, as she puts it, you know, perfection is made up of all of the tiny details lining up. I love that. And what a gift for, of a mother to have that intentional insight around how to put you in places where you learned and were given the skills. That's incredible. And so did you have any sort of entrepreneurial inklings or aspirations when you were younger? Do you remember thinking about like, what am I going to do as I grow up? Or how did your story evolve as you became a teenager? I was a terror in class. I was the worst child imaginable. It, and it's so much weight on me now because by the time I got to first grade, I had already been reading for, you know, three years. So, you know, back then they give you the book that you're going to be reading for the school year. And I was so excited to get another book. I, you know, I'd read it that week. And then, you know, the next week they're like, okay, we're on page two. And I'm like, oh my God. And so I was just a little terrorist in class. I was just so bored out of my mind. They wanted to skip me up two grades, but the other teachers were like, oh, he's not coming to my class. I don't want that guy. And so it had to be just incredibly frustrating for my mom because on the one hand, I would consistently test in the 98th percentile, but also would consistently get D's and F's like throughout my school career. And she always wanted to, you know, imbue all these lessons on me and it just didn't click like these larger life lessons of, you know, not being a jerk and, you know, just being a good person. And these things just didn't click for me until around the 11th grade. I don't know what it was. I just heard it at the right time in the right way at a certain particular point and it all blew open for me and I just, I understood, but I had like this awful track record that I couldn't shake. So I changed schools, clean slate, and I don't know, I, I just always seemed to think bigger. I always wanted to do more and eventually I, I thought to myself, okay, well, what do I want the ultimate Jarrett life to look like? Okay, let's figure that out. Okay, well, what does something like this cost? All right, we'll figure that out. And then, okay, well, what jobs pay this? And one of the things that I came up with was property developer. So, okay, well, what what does that per person do? And spent, you know, a few months in my room figuring it out. I'm like, oh, okay, I, I, I think I can do this. And I just kind of launched into it. And that was the birth of um, a real estate company that I started when I was 19. Within 30 months, it was a national organization, um, you know, bringing in millions a year. Wow. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Okay. So hold on. Hold on. So most kids at that age are thinking, are still sort of like, I won't say it's a pipe dream, but for some people it is. 
they want to be an actor or a musician or an athlete or video game designer or you know, own a restaurant. So what put real estate property into your mind? Like, did, did somebody introduce that to you? Did you look it up at the library? Like, how did that even come into your purview? The two things that were really pivotal for me when I was a kid, my uncle, uh, Rosero, he lived next door to me in Richmond. And one day out of the blue, because when you, when you grow up, you know, where I grew up with the people that I was around, either you worked at the cable company or you went to work at Big O Tires, or if you were super lucky, like super lottery style lucky, you would become a longshoreman, right? And that was like the ultimate dream job that nobody got. But my uncle, just out of the blue for me, it was just out of the blue. It was like, you know what? I'm going to go down to LA and be a dancer. And he did. He just up and left and has been to this day. This is 30 years ago. You know, to this day is very successful um, in that realm. And so that opened me up and I was like, oh my goodness. So you can just go off and do pretty much anything as long as you like really get down to it. You can, you can make things happen. My auntie, his sister, Dana, she one day completely out of the blue said, you know what? I'm going to start a, start a hot dog cart. And I'm like, auntie, you, you don't even know anybody that has a hot dog cart. Like, how are you going to do this? That's crazy. But she did. It was summer vacation for me. So I spent a lot of time with her and I was with her as she went to the city, as she, you know, measured out the streets, as she sourced the cart, as she sourced her ingredients and what it was going to take. That showed me that you don't have to know anybody in a certain field to get in there and make it happen. Between those two examples, I was thinking to myself, okay, well, you know what? Let's get weird. Let's just get out here and try something. That gave me the the courage, I guess, to try anything. And so just Googling where at the time it was like Yahoo and Excite, different things. I just happened to come across it. I didn't know what it was. It didn't, the, the words didn't mean anything to me, but it didn't frighten me because I had two prime examples right there in my life that made it happen. So I'm like, okay, well, I can, I can do this too. It's, it's okay. Let's go. That's a great story. And so much of entrepreneurship at some point is looking to the people who have gone before and being inspired and emboldened by the fact that hey, they're doing it, right? It's possible. And yeah, maybe they're special people, but they put their pants on one leg at a time, just like me. And, and part of it is self-determination. So I love that. And so you're, you're doing this real estate company at 19. I'm interested to hear the story of kind of where this went, because obviously you've done other things since then. So talk us through the evolution and kind of what happened with, with that business. So I went to my mom with this just massive, overwhelming data set that I had been in my room curating for months. And me, I tend to obsess about details. And at the time I said, I tended to be like a little bit frantic, you know, when I had details. And so I come to him like, okay, mom, this is what we're going to do. I have this and I have that. And I'm look, telling her all my data. And I can do this and I can do that. And she's just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay. Whoa, what are you, what are you looking to do here? And I convinced her to let me use her home equity line of credit on her house to flip a home in Stockton. And I did. I was, you know, I was 19. It was my first flip. And I was off to the races. That was my first taste of money. But I realized, man, I know what I'm doing, but not really. So I went to, I went door to door to different real estate loan agencies. Say, hey, I have no experience. I have no idea what I'm doing, but I want to learn. Can I work for you for free? One person eventually said yes. Um, I started to learn the business as I as I learned the business and was again doggedly tracking down those details. I started to put together dots that other people previously hadn't put together and was able to I hate to get all buzzwordy, but I was able to find like unique opportunities with which to monetize. And so I it wasn't like a HGTV flip this house kind of deal. I, I did like really creative deals in real estate all across the country that were incredibly lucrative. And I have to tell you, it was absolutely awesome, you know, because of all the stress and pain that I put on my mom, you know, it's a Kanye West song. 
Dear Mama or Hey Mama, something like that. Song he dedicated to his mom. And there's a lyric in that song that resonates so deeply with me. When people ask me, like, where does my this incessant drive come from? He says, you know, there is, I feel like there's things I got to get, things I got to do just to prove to you that you were getting through. And I've always reached a little further. I've always gone a little harder than my, than my contemporaries. Yeah. And so, I, I, yeah, it, it, it was awesome right up until it wasn't the financial crisis. Financial crisis took me out, man. Well, actually, it took a few years for it to catch up to me. Um, by that time, I was doing some really interesting things, and like subprime went away, and it didn't really affect me. A couple of other things went away, it didn't really affect me. But the banks just stopped lending completely, period. I started losing money. Um, it took me three years to run out of money, but I eventually did. You know, I was lo- losing, you know, the equivalent of a brand new Lamborghini a month, every month for years straight. So, you know, when you go from the Midas touch to like this is incessant failure, it takes a toll on you. And it just pissed me off, you know, because as smart as I was supposed to be, I could not figure it out. I could not put the pieces back together. And I knew that there was a way that I could do it. It was like having a big garbage bag of Legos and someone asking you to build the Death Star. I know that I can. I have all the pieces here. I just don't have any instruction on how to put this thing together. I can't figure it out. So not to make any excuses. I don't come from anywhere fancy. But as I started losing money, as I started, you know, getting desperate, as I started making like, you know, worse and worse and worse decisions in the height of my mania, wound up getting indicted. And that was just a whole nother thing. Spent a little bit of time in Club Fed, which was not fun. Wow. That's a pretty good teaser. So we're, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with Jarrett Wright from Higher Rewards. Do you have a startup idea and don't know where to start? Or maybe your startup is not moving fast enough? Well, let me introduce you to my new book, Trajectory Startup, which is designed to take you from idea to launch to revenue in just six months. Hi, I'm five-time founder Dave Parker. Trajectory Startup takes the mystery out of the startup process with a straightforward roadmap that includes deliverables, resources, and a timeline. It's a must-read for your entrepreneur journey. But don't take my word for it. Here's my friend Mandela. This is Mandela Schumacher-Hodge-Dixon, the CEO of Founder Gym, the number one online program training underrepresented founders on how to raise capital to scale their tech startups. If there is anything I've learned from building a successful business, it's that having a playbook you can trust matters a lot. Fortunately, Dave's superpower is simplifying the complex. And after decades of building, investing in, and studying a vast array of businesses, Dave has transformed his lessons into an easy-to-follow guide. Trajectory Startup is available at dkparker.com, amazon.com, or wherever books are sold. Get it today. So we're back with Jarrett. So Jarrett just (laughs) gave us a really interesting tidbit. So... Coming off his first business, which was super successful until the macro events of the Great Recession came calling. And as he mentioned, it ended up with him being indicted and having to serve time. Tell us about that. That was super rough, you know, because when you're a kid, well, when I was a kid, you know, you used to be riding bikes outside with friends and fantasizing about just you know, awesome life. And, you know, it's like, oh man, you know, if I had a million dollars, you know what I would do? My my whole family would never go broke and blah, 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 blah. And here I am clocking in over five million a year, net, couldn't figure it out. Handed a shot, you know, maybe not handed, I don't know, but this is my shot. I felt like this was my shot. I, no drugs. I don't, you know, I don't know how to rap. I don't, I don't play any sports. I'm very non-athletic. Athletic body, but not, I can't, I can't dribble a throw. You know, it's not my thing. But here, here I am. I found my way. And I blew it anyway. You know, this is a super low point for me. While I was there, interestingly enough, there being, you know, I was in a federal prison camp in Oregon. You know, you, 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 I was, I wound up there with like some really interesting people. 
international tax attorneys, you know, real estate moguls. I met the guy that put the, together the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, interestingly enough. Really, really wild stuff. But while I was there, I, I would just drill them with questions. What about this? Why would I do this? Why would I do that? You know, um, once I figured out who they were, you know, I was like, you went to like, you know, we're, we're like broad stroking it right now, you know, cliff notes, but you know, really intricate details. Okay. Well, hey, this is what I was trying to do. This is where I was going with it. This is where I went wrong. And they're like, Oh yeah, no, that, that is a thing, but you just needed to tweak it a little bit this way. And it would have been perfectly legal. We would have never met. And that was a shot to the head. Because you want to roll over and die, but celebrate. You want to cry, but there's just this duality there. Because on the one hand, I wasn't crazy. I did figure something out that could have, might have worked where I wouldn't have fallen off. You know, this is, you know, something that the quote unquote big boys are out there doing, right? But the label set in the Death Star, I didn't have a way to put it together. I didn't know how. That's fascinating. It's almost like you had your own Davos conference <laughs> inside the prison. I mean, it's not, I'm not making light of it, but like it, it's actually, that's pretty interesting that you were around people that probably ended up impacting your journey going forward in some form or fashion, whether it was just this postmortem on your past business or connections, maybe even as you came out of there. That's, that's really fascinating. How long were you there? And obviously you're out and you've been out for a while. So how did that come about? Yes, I was there for 18 months. When you're in a place like that, they don't just open the door and say, all right, there you go. They send you to a halfway house. A halfway house was in Oakland. I spent another 12 months there, but I was no longer with the white collar guys. I was with everybody else that couldn't afford to get on house arrest and go home. I didn't have a home to go to. And even if I did, I couldn't afford house arrest because you have to pay for it. So I was there. But while I was in prison talking to these guys, that's when my mind was blown open. Whereas if, if I knew the stuff that they, these guys knew, I wouldn't have fallen off. Or if I just knew these guys, I wouldn't have fallen off. So that's where I was when I decided to go and get an MBA. My grandmother, she went to UC Berkeley. So I wanted to continue a tradition and, and go, into the, go to UC Berkeley in her footsteps. She actually talked me into getting my first degree in rhetoric. Because although I wanted an MBA, I wanted something to complement an MBA. Because I had to start from scratch. I hadn't been in the classroom since I graduated. When I was 19, I wasn't in college. I was running the company. Rhetoric, huh? Yeah, rhetoric. So I have a degree in the art of persuasion. Nice. That's not something you hear often, but it's, uh, I'm sure it's a powerful part of your toolkit for sure. Oh, without question. Another one of those pivotal moments for me, it really opened my mind up. Um, I always say that, you know, when I was in class, like coming out of class, it was like I could see the world in matrix code. Like I just understood so much more. And by this time, you know, getting my degree, this was during the 2016 election cycle. And so studying rhetoric while watching what was going on in the political sphere, oh my God, it was it was really mind-blowing for me. Yeah, you were probably like, oh, that's this method and that's this method. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So tell me, so you, you're actually going to school, you know, as an older, more mature person who's seen a few things. How was the dynamic for you with, you know, 17, 18, 19, 20-year-olds who obviously have a different view of the world. They're still figuring out who they are. Was it uncomfortable? Did you feel like, you know, you, you kind of had life experience over them, so it was easier for you? What was it like to be in school at that, that kind of stage in life? For me, I was laser-like focused on what I, what I came there for, which was an MBA, and I knew that the BA was in my way to get there. But I have to say, there were a number of like fall out of my chair kind of moments. I remember this girl in class raised her hand and she's like, you know, but I was born in 2001. And I, I was like, whoa, I graduated high school in 2001 and you, you were born and now we're in the same class. This is crazy. But you know, black don't crack. So while I was in class, you know, there wasn't like a visible difference. In fact, you know, I remember like, you know, being out with my my friends, my classmates, and they're like, they're like, you know, 
whispering like, oh, well, there's, there's, she's so much older than us. She's 26. I'm like, what? that's cute, 33. But that's, that's adorable. But you know, to, to get more to the meat of your question, it was a strong advantage because I had what nobody else in the room had, this perspective where all these lessons were immediately applicable. It, it wasn't like, oh, well, on page 29, the book says, I'm like, okay, so I, I remember I was running this one deal and what ha happened was, you know, and so I can immediately apply, you know, the lessons that we're learning in class to a thousand different scenarios in my past. And I knew exactly how I'd be using these things in the future. So I felt like I had a leg up. I was far more grateful for the lessons getting them at 3123 than I would have been at age 19. Because at age 19, I was just focused on balling. And now I'm more focused on the world and those around me. I loved it. I had a fantastic experience and I very much identify as a rhetoric major. I'm a rhetorician through and through. Nice. I didn't even know that was the term, a rhetorician. I love it. So let's let's hop into higher rewards. Tell us about like where did the idea come from? What was the spark for higher rewards? You know, broad strokes, broad strokes, I think we've gone over a lot a lot of the, the resume. But none of it I feel that none of it was just due to my own special mightiness. And all of it was because of the examples that I had around me. My auntie with the hot dog cart, my uncle, you know, going off and dancing. He's a choreographer now. Support. You know, support doesn't always come in the form of a check. Sometimes it's just somebody believing in you. Sometimes it's just somebody, you know, showing you the way, showing you what's possible. And that, more than anything else, you know, my mom teaching me all the lessons that she's taught me over the years, that is the difference. I find that 100% of the difference is support. And I just couldn't help but to wonder, what if the rest of the world had the same type of support that I enjoy? And chasing that question spawned 600 plus hours of face-to-face -face interviews. It, I was dug into tens of thousands of pages of research, not looking on, like, oh, can we issue credit cards? Because that's not where my mind was. My mind was, how do I support these communities? And as I was digging into it, all these data points, they were kind of swirling around a singular idea. And that singular idea, it just kind of burst out. It, it was a credit card. That was the common denominator. That's how something that people can use that they all, you don't have to teach them how to use. Everybody knows what a credit card is. Everybody knows what rewards points are. And we can use that to funnel money back in, into organizations that are already out there putting in work. Because I don't, I don't know how to do that stuff that they do. These guys are incredibly talented. You know, um, I don't know how to run a homeless shelter. I don't know how to, to, to run a men's program. But, you know, like I always say, I'm a sharp negotiator. I got an eye for women's scenarios. And I build incredibly efficacious teams. This is me just bring, bringing my best self to the world. Was there a point at which you said, I mean, that's a credible discovery process. And I love that you started with kind of what's the big picture and what's the what's the thing I'm trying to solve, not like, here's this idea and how does that map to something. But was there a point where you said, okay, yes, this is what we're doing. This is going to be a company and let's go. Or was it still sort of evolutionary and sort of like you just sort of at one day like, okay, we're incorporating and let's go. There were two things that happened. One that I glossed over, but I'll, I'll go into a little detail now. During this time period, I was running a, a marketing company and a mentor of mine, I'd already been doing this research, a mentor of mine was like, you know, you should really take your, your marketing company, take it into the church. And he's, he's a, a great guy and has lots of wonderful ideas. This was just not one of them. And I'm like, oh my goodness, no, this is not what I'm going to do. And so we're just like kind of pitching each other ideas across the table over the period of like, you know, three or so weeks. And I'd already been doing this research in the background. And I can't remember what he said, but whatever it was he said, um, I'm like, no, 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 that, that'll never work. The only way that it worked is if you gave them their own credit card. Now, oh my God, wait a minute. That might be a thing. But I was still doing research and it was such a simple idea. It was such a pure and a beautiful idea that I couldn't 
I couldn't figure out why it hadn't been done before. And it wasn't until I just so happened to find myself in the same space as a executive or with an executive, an old executive from Chase. And he told me why he was like, or excuse me, she, she said, uh, we would have loved to do this at Chase, but there's a division between church and state. And that very much translates into the financial world. Um, and there's no way, there's no way we can even touch something like this. Um, so it's beautiful that you're, you're, you're taking the mantle on. And when I figured out why no one else was doing it, then I picked it up and ran. So tell us, where is it today? So like, obviously, this is a situation or a company where you've got to get organizations and there's all this fintech backend stuff you have to do. Where is the company in terms of its development? Do you have partners yet? Where is the company at right now? As you might imagine, building a bank is what we've essentially done during the middle of a pandemic is not easy. But we're able to get it done. The thing that makes you a bank is it's called a bank identification number or a BIN. Our BIN comes from Prosper Bank and our BIN number is 4344-7200. Uh, it's like burned in my brain at this point. Very proud of that. So we have established a bank. We have built out the infrastructure needed to issue credit cards and we have actually started issuing credit cards um, that are out there in use currently. We're looking at expanding our reach. We're looking at um, getting a, a larger credit line so we can start onboarding um, those on our waiting list. Currently, we have almost 700,000 people on our waiting list. Um, we've been broken up amongst 40 or so different organizations that have signed up with, with higher rewards. So massive waiting list. The infrastructure is is nice, strong, very proud of, of, of what the team has been able to put together. Uh, 30 people here working. We're, we're in a really good place. Um, you know, the train is on the track and it's moving downhill. So I'm just doing everything that I can to, you know, stay in front of me, keep the train on the track, I guess. So 30 people, that's quite, that's quite a number. That's, uh, that's impressive. And can you share who, who some of the early partners are at this point? We can't share too, too much, but, one of the organizations that has given us the green light is a um, it's a nonprofit organization based in Santa Rosa, First Responders Resiliency, um, and they focus on helping our first responders, cops, firefighters, etc., deal with PTSD. That was interesting, very very important work that they're doing. Derek Chauvin, the cop that killed George Floyd, without making any excuses for his behavior, he moved straight from active duty combat in, in Afghanistan, straight over to, to American civilian streets. Very, very, very different space. And there's no transition. There's no training. Like this, you are no longer in a war zone. We are all Americans. We are all on the same side here. That's an interesting group for sure. That's cool. And so that's a nonprofit, I take it. Yeah. So they, they help, they help cops, you know, deal with that. And, you know, for me, they are making my black life safer on the streets. It fills me with pride to be able to support organizations like that. And this is a singular example of the organizations that we have, um, that we have signed up. Um, it's a singular example of the organizations that we will continue to sign up across the country. That's great. So let's fast forward a little bit. So, you know, you, you have a really healthy perspective based upon your experiences, but let's say talking to your mom in a few years, however long it takes, and you say, mom, higher awards is a success. We have done it. What would that look like? What was that going to feel like? Well, how would you describe the outcome in a way that made you feel like this was as a success? <laughs> you know, I, I hate to boil it down to a really cold number, but I'd say $200 a share. It's I can boil it down to that because it's indicative of the number of cards that we have out there. It's indicative of the amount of revenue that we are pushing out into the community. And Hard Rewards is a household name. We all know this. You want a card program set up? This is where you go. Our waiting list right now is so large that we have uh, stopped reaching out to to organizations. Um, and even though we haven't been spending, you know, really any money on outbound marketing, you know, organizations are reaching out to us 
um, finding us, looking for something like this. And I mean, this form on a website, filling it out, you know, and this is before we even put it any real money towards marketing. <laughs> I can't wait to be get a foot outside the door but to answer your question a little bit more directly. It's when when High Rewards is, is a household name and we are pouring millions upon millions upon millions of dollars into communities that truly need it literally all over the world. I love that. And uh, investors are going to love that answer too. $200 a share sounds pretty good to me. But we're going to take another short break and we'll be right back with Jarrett Wright from Higher Rewards. Do you have a startup idea and don't know where to start? Or maybe your startup is not moving fast enough? Well, let me introduce you to my new book, Trajectory Startup, which is designed to take you from idea to launch to revenue in just six months. Hi, I'm five-time founder Dave Parker. Trajectory Startup takes the mystery out of the startup process with a straightforward roadmap that includes deliverables, resources, and a timeline. It's a must-read for your entrepreneur journey. But don't take my word for it. Here's my friend Mandela. Hi, this is Mandela Schumacher-Hodge-Dixon, the CEO of Founder Gym, the number one online program training underrepresented founders on how to raise capital to scale their tech startups. If there is anything I've learned from building a successful business, it's that having a playbook you can trust matters a lot. Fortunately, Dave's superpower is simplifying the complex. And after decades of building, investing in, and studying a vast array of businesses, Dave has transformed his lessons into an easy-to-follow guide. Trajectory Startup is available at dkparker.com, amazon.com, or wherever books are sold. Get it today. So we're back with Jarrett. So before we move away from higher rewards, Jarrett, I did notice on the website that you you had a big announcement with Visa. Maybe tell us a little bit about that. Yes, yes, yes. So Visa, brands making new, just started a accelerator program, Visa Fast Track. So being inducted into Visa's FinTech accelerator program, we gained unprecedented access to Visa's experts technology and resources. This means that Visa hand selects and connects us with the very best enablement partners in the world. Partners who give us exclusive discounts just for being affiliated with with the accelerator. But on top of these discounts, we negotiated an additional $175 million worth of savings. Um, So for us, what that means, like since we're first to market, nobody else will have access to the very same enablement partners because then partner with someone else that does the same thing, it would cannibalize their already existing contractual relationship that they have with high rewards, effectively boxing out the competition. I'm not saying that nobody else could ever do this ever again in life. But what I am saying is that if someone else wanted to do exactly what we're doing, that's that's fine. But one, not only do they not have access to the the same enablement partners, uh, it'll be at least... $200 $200 million more expensive, minimum. And I mean, they've lost first movers advantage because we're already issuing cars and generating revenue. The only thing that's missing right now is the investment to onboard those that, that are on our waiting list. Um, another fun fact, actually, the Visa FinTech program or Visa Fast Track, technically, we did not qualify because when you sign on, um, you're supposed to already have millions in revenue you're supposed to already have millions in investment, neither neither of which we've had. But they took a look at the team. They took a look at what we built, what we built it with. And Visa, <laughs> Visa went to their legal department and rewrote the contract just to let us in. Very, very proud of that. Very, very proud. That's awesome. And uh, I've had across my career opportunities to explore partnership with Visa and MasterCard. And I know it's no trivial thing to get it and to go through that process and to have it is uh, certainly good wind in the sails. So you, you mentioned a little bit about fundraising. Let's talk a little bit about that. How, how have you funded this company so far? Have you raised any money? Are you raising money now? Yeah, so I had an exit in 2019. I sold the marketing company. And so I have put... Um, somewhere in the neighborhood of 750 grand of my own money um, into this up to this point. Um, on top of that, there's about a quarter million dollars um, in safe notes. These are these are little friends and family that have they've seen what I've built in the past. 
and they begged me to get on um, a little early. So there's that. And then there's, um, there's a few other safe notes from, from a handful of, of investors that are, you know, from, from more, from more traditional sources. But yes, we are currently fundraising and that has been an extreme challenge. If I'm just being frank, you know, I would love to say smooth sailing, great idea, plenty of traction, plenty of numbers, We're literally checking all of the boxes that they all say that you should be checking. Um, no problem. We knocked it out of the park, but it's not the case. You know, it's not the case. And it's crazy hard. It's crazy hard. So, yeah. So it sounds like it's been, it's been challenging. Do you feel like there's any dynamic about being a black founder that's involved with that? Or do you think it's more around the opportunity itself? What's your assessment of the, the challenge with the fundraising? I am always hesitant to pull the race card. However, it is the, the response that I get. It does raise an eyebrow and you do wonder, but it's one of those spaces where you can never really tell for sure because it's so subjective, you know, they can hide behind any answer, right? And I mean, when I look at it, yeah, I'm biased, but you know, what are the check boxes that they usually want you to have? You have to be an experienced founder. Okay, well, I've been building multi-million dollar corporations since I was a teenager. Well, you have to be able to prove that you can execute. Okay, I built a bank in the middle of a pandemic. Okay, well, you have to be able to prove that you can put together a team. There are 30 people currently working for me for free. And these are damn good individuals. I mean, they're the ones who built this bank. You have to have a, a demonstrated market for it. Okay, well, there's there are more people on the waiting list than there are citizens in Oakland, California. Okay, well, you have to prove that people are going to use it in the market. I have credit cards in hands that people are currently using. You know, I'll get into conversations with people. I'll say, okay, well, hey, what are your revenue requirements? We don't have revenue requirements. Great. This is what we're doing. This is where we're at. Okay, well, you're a little too early for us because, you know, you don't meet our revenue requirements. It's like, oh, I thought you said you don't have revenue requirements. Well, we don't have revenue requirements. It's just, you know, the requirements that we... And so they're like going back and forth. And so it's like, look, what is it really? What is it really? I know that we're on a podcast and no one can see me, but I am standing in front of $10,000 worth of equipment, professional lights, DLL car camera, um, professional mic. I practice, you know, like the, the pitching thing. I'm a rhetoric major first and foremost. I'm, I'm all into this. Uh, I, I, I hit all the points. I, I am putting all of this together. So I'm just, please look past my black face and notice what I'm building here is something that is truly incredible, truly incredible. And this is objectively that thing. And so why is it so difficult? I feel like I'm holding the, the colored and diamond in my hand and I'm going around trying to sell it. That shouldn't be something that you're trying to sell, the colored and diamond. I'm looking at Brex. Brex is valued at what, 7.4 billion right now? Our cards, uh, it's a charge card, first of all. No shade on, on what Brex is doing. Um, I am very proud just looking at what that team has built. However, I will say that our cards, being that they are actual credit cards and not charge cards, um, we generate 40% more revenue than their cards do usage for usage. Why is this difficult? Why is it difficult? So it's hard to say this is exactly what it is, but I'm running out of reasons as to as to what else it could be. And it sucks that that's even a consideration. It sucks that that's even a thought. I wish I sucked at pitching. I wish we didn't have revenue. I wish that we didn't have a waiting list or it was something else that I can point to and fix. I can't fix my face. I can't fix my color. And I shouldn't have to. I'm very proud of who I am. Very proud. I'm very proud of being a Black American. I just 
hate that it's even a consideration, but it is. Yeah, I can hear the frustration in your voice, and you're right. It's it shouldn't be a consideration, and that's you know part of the foundations for why we started this podcast is to show that the boxes are checked, and we're not entrepreneurs looking for charity or some sort of feel good. We're we're looking for people to recognize the value that we're we're building and the strength and fortitude and resilience we have as entrepreneurs, which you are a perfect emboldened example of. Let, let me let me ask a, a different question. Have there been organizations, folks uh, specifically, or events, experiences that have been beneficial for you as a founder or, and or as an African-American founder? So being a part of the UC Berkeley ecosystem has been an incredible boom for, for me and for us. It's truly a wonderful place to be if you're if you're an entrepreneur. You know, Skydeck has you know, blessed us with you know uh, almost a limitless supply of interns, um, and, and they're phenomenal. They, they they get it done. They're energetic. They're driven. They're smart. And so yeah, various programs within uh, within UC Berkeley has has been an, an incredible help to me. I'm trying not to lean into the negative bit of it, not of UC Berkeley, but just some of the places that I thought would be more receptive um, to me, I feel like they aren't. Uh, and those being like mainly like impact investors, usually I'll get more love from those who are just like hard, hard cold facts. Like, okay, hey, are you, are you hitting the check boxes? Oh, you are? Okay, well then you will get a lot further with those with those individuals than with, with impact investors, um, which is surprising to us because my whole modus operandi is is to impact the world in, in a way that we haven't seen before. Um, you know, I've said, I said it earlier in the podcast, you know, so we're looking for millions of dollars into communities that for real needed. And so it, I guess it was kind of surprising that that wasn't a, a place for us um, or hasn't been a place for us thus far. But yeah, those who are deeper into the fintech space, I think that they get what we're doing and they understand how large what we're working on is. Um, so I probably get the most love there. Great. That's good to hear, actually. So one of the questions we like to ask, Jared, is if you could go back in time and let's pick the Jared that was still a rhetoric major, I guess. So had done your first entrepreneurial endeavor and gone through its ups and downs, but not quite yet into higher awards. What kind of advice would this Jarrett give that Jarrett what to do, what not to do, what to double down on, what to run away from? What kind of advice would you give that Jarrett? Do it now. Do it right now. I had this idea when I was an undergrad at UC Berkeley and it hit me like, oh, I hate to be cliche, but it hit me like a bolt of lightning. I was like, whoa, oh my God, this is going to be amazing. This is going to be so good. I can't be distracted with anything else. So I'm going to wait until I graduate and then I'm going to dig, you know, dive in deep. Big mistake. Big, 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 big mistake because what I did was I waited until I was out of the ecosystem. I waited until I was out of my support system of UC Berkeley, where there's, you know, tons of entrepreneurs and resources and to get into it. And I'm suddenly by myself. There's a big difference, you know, living 30 minutes away from campus as opposed to living across the street from campus. There's a big difference between, you know, bumping into your friends, you know, you know, down on Sproul, then having to call and set up a meeting, you know, okay, hey, let's, you know, when are we going to do this? And it was a big difference. And I wasn't really able to get any traction because I was working on it by myself until I came back to UC Berkeley to get my MBA. Did a part-time MBA so I could still work on it in the meantime. And then it was gasoline all over it, gasoline all over it. And we're, we're launching off like a rocket and it's been fantastic ever since. So my big advice that I would give to myself as a rhetoric major, as soon as the idea hits, do not delay. That was my biggest mistake. 
I love that. And uh, we hear that as a common refrain, that urgency and that trusting your initial instincts. So we always like to end with uh, a call to action to Unfound Nation. So tell us, Jared, how can we be helpful to higher rewards? How can we be helpful to you specifically? Tell us what we can do to, to help impact your journey. First of all, give us a follow. Um, HarveyRewards.com at HarveyRewards. That's on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, keep up with us, but a, a direct call to action. One, we're, we're in the middle of fundraising. So um, early stage uh, investors, we're looking at seed, series A round. Um, we, we can talk about amounts um, offline when, when we have the conversation. And organizations, we're, we're, not, we're not reaching out, but I'm looking to throw rocks into several pools. So we're working with, with fraternities. And working with the fraternity, you start working with lots of different fraternities. We're working with, you know, Christian organizations in a select few number of places. And then you start working with a number of organizations, you know, around them. Same, same thing with like Islamic centers in Atlanta. You know, we start working with a number of organizations around them. And so these are rocks into separate pools, um, where we ripple out to the edges. Hit us up. We want to, we want to be a rock in your pool. Um, and we want to ripple out to the edge of your community to make sure that we are fully impacting everyone and not leaving out anybody. I love it. And, uh, and hopefully we can marshal our audience to help. I love this. And, uh, so Jared, I want to thank you for sharing so much and for coming on today. Your story is great. You typify why we exist and what, what we're trying to do to help spotlight and showcase great entrepreneurs like yourself. So thank you again for coming on the show. I appreciate you for having me. Thank you. We'd like to thank our guest, Jarrett Wright, and our sponsor, Dave Parker, and his new book, Trajectory Startup. This podcast was produced by yours truly, Dan Kihanya. Audio editing and production by We Edit Podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, or simply go to foundersunfound.com forward slash listen to. That's listen to. And follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn at Founders Unfound. Thanks so much for tuning in. I am Dan Kihanya, and you've been listening to Founders Unfound.